National Archives podcast series, Roll Up, Roll Up, The Evolution of the Circus 10-in-1 Show, presented by Adele Chaplin. Roll up, roll up. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for stepping up to the talk room or to the online podcast and for choosing this talk. Consider it, if you will, your ticket to the greatest collection of physical wonders, magnificent marvels, peerless prodigies, peculiar performers the world has ever seen, and not to mention perhaps a few exaggerations and a lot of adjectives. <laughs> Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to the 10 in 1 show. So what is a 10 in 1 show? It's a circus sideshow where you would get 10 acts performing together under one roof, usually before the main three-ring circus event. It contained all manner of unusual acts. You might know it better as a freak show, although that term tends to have fallen out of popular use. No matter what you call it, however, we've always had a fascination with the curious. I'm going to take you through the 10 acts of my 10 in one show. I hope you like them. Back in the beginning, 1100 is the first, or what is generally accepted to be the first case of conjoined twins recorded. The Biddenden maids were better known as Eliza and Mary Chalkhurst. They were born into a fairly affluent family and they were joined at the hips and at the shoulders, which is quite unusual. They were close friends, which I think you'd kind of have to be if you were attached at the shoulders and the hips, um, but apparently did sometimes disagree and had frequent quarrels and often came to blows. I would have paid to see that, I think, quite happily. Mary was suddenly taken ill when they were 34 and she died. Um, and it was suggested at the time, quite a forward-looking suggestion, that perhaps a doctor should be fetched to try and separate them so that Eliza could carry on living. Eliza at the time, however, said, as we came together, we will also go together. In other words, no, when she's gone, it's not worth me hanging on. The reason they're famous is they left a will leaving parcels of land around Biddenden to the church wardens of the time. It was left in perpetuity. And what happened was that the rent from these parcels of land was then used to provide for the deserving and the poor of the area, which was about 20 guineas a year. And that provided quite a lot. They gave out cakes and food, and they still to this day, if you go to Biddenden, give out little cakes with pictures of the conjoined twins on. So moving on slightly in time, we go to my part of the world now, and we have the Scottish brothers. Another set of conjoined twins. They're not all conjoined twins, I promise you. These ones were born in about 1490, from what we can tell from records. They were joined from the hip down, so they had one set of legs, but two bodies. Sort of one and a half men, perhaps, if you will. They were taken to the court of James IV of Scotland, who was fascinated by these young men, and decided that he should do whatever he could to bring them on. So they were very, very carefully brought up and they were educated in the royal court. Uh, the records tell us that they were very accomplished musicians and they were also proficient linguists. Uh, by the time they were 20, one or both of them could speak, and I have this written down because it's a big list, English, Irish, Latin, French, Italian, Spanish and Dutch Danish, which isn't bad for a set of conjoined twins. Unlike the Biddenden maids, however, these two fought like cat and dog, constantly. They were often differed in opinion, as you can see from this little quotation about the one here. 
They were also prone to telling other people off because they had disorders in their behaviour and actions, whatever that might be. They died in 1518, which was a reasonably long time of living for that, that kind of condition in that time period. And it's recorded that one of them lived considerably longer than the other. I'm not quite sure how accurate that is, but that's the way the story is told. The royals liked their strange and unusuals. They had dwarfs aplenty, strange and curious beings in their courts. The first recording of dwarves at court probably comes from the bar ballad that starts in Arthur's court, Tom Thumb did live. You might know it, it's nursery rhyme, it has about 20 verses. If you Google it, you'll find a million copies of it. The first English court dwarf appears to have been John Jarvis. He stood a grand two foot high, so he'd come up to about my knee, I think, probably, and he was page to Queen Mary I. Mary's brother, Edward VII, had his own dwarf called Zit. I don't think that's the loveliest name for him, but the first English dwarf of whom there's really anything like a history is Geoffrey Hudson. He was around from 1619 to 1682, and he was the son of a butcher from Oakham. He was given to Queen Henrietta Maria as a dwarf and a plaything, baked into a pie crust. He popped out, a bit like one of these cakes you get nowadays. And he led an interesting life. He was captured by pirates. He was appointed captain of the horse. He fought and won a duel, presumably standing on a stepladder or a large box. I'm not sure. He shot a man in the head. He was sold into slavery and he was arrested and imprisoned as part of the papish plot. So he led a fairly interesting life. The last court dwarf that we know of in England was a chap called Coppermin. Um, and he was in the service of Princess Augusta of Wales, the mother of George III. Some of the most famous dwarves at court, though, are the ones held by Philip IV of Spain. Um, they were a key site in most of the royal courts. Um, and in fact, it was noted at one time that a dwarf was a necessity for every family. So if you haven't got one, then I suggest you nip down to buy right and get one. We'll move forward in time a little bit now to the wonders of Bartholomew Fair. Bartholomew Fair is a London fair held in Smithfield from about 1133. It had puppet shows, wrestlers, fire eaters, dwarfs, dancing bears, performing monkeys, cage tigers, all sorts of things could be seen at Bartholomew Fair. Astrologers cast horoscopes, medicines were hawked, it was your general kind of hustle and bustle. Lots of supplies of toys, foods, everything else. You could even procure a lady, if you so wanted, from the um, nearby street called Cock Lane. So you can imagine what went on in Cock Lane. And the fair went on full tilt through the 18th century. When Wordsworth visited, when he called it a parliament of monsters, some of the attractions included albinos and red Indians. You could have ventriloquists, waxworks, and a learned pig, which, while blindfolded, could tell the time and cast accounts. Clever pig. You could buy glass teacups blown for threepence, and crocodiles. Maybe that's where they all got into the sewer from. The loutishness and drunkenness of the fair, however, eventually proved its undoing. And in 1855, it was no more. It had to be stopped. But it wasn't the end of the curiosities. Our aforementioned pig kept going. This is Toby, the sapient pig. He's perhaps the forerunner of today's reality TV star. Everybody wanted to go and see Toby, the sapient pig. He could count, he could read, he could tell you your fortune. All manner of wonderful things. 
but he was the latest in a long line of performing pigs. Quite what caused the public to become so enamoured with Toby, we're not sure, but there are hundreds of accounts written about Toby. Unsurprisingly, probably, his trainer was a magician who'd turned to training performing animals. And after Toby, was seen in the company of a performing goose. <sighs> I think the pig might be slightly more effective. They, in reality, they'd been round from about the 18th century. They'd appeared in all sorts of venues. Uh, the Carlton Club was quite a popular one in Pall Mall. We'd often show things like this. And exhibition rooms and venues up and down the country would show these animals. After the pigs, well then came learning dogs, talking horses, all manner. Although the talking was a bit of an ambiguity. They used to stamp their foot on the floor and that was about it. Although none of them, unlike Toby here, had an autobiography. Toby used to sell his for a penny a time whenever he performed. I think that's really quite a talented thing. <coughs> Once we got over the feet of the performing animals, then we became a bit more interested in the wider world. Exploration meant that we were going out to foreign lands, bringing back trophies. Quite often, these trophies were people. And they'd be put on display for the inquiring public. I love this idea of two Chinese ladies. And it goes on to tell you about their lovely long fingernails and their beautiful eyes. Chinese were often a lady that was brought back, as well as Circassians, who were Turkish women, who were seen to be the most beautiful of beautiful women. And they did, literally, sit in a nice big chair as people filed past to look at them to see how wonderful they were. Other kinds of indigenous people were brought back. As I've already mentioned, Red Indians were seen at Bartholomew Fair. Eskimos and Aborigines all appeared at one time or another in the streets. It was something which later on was monopolised by people like Barnum. Barnum often travelled with his sideshow with a Circassian beauty, who was nothing like the Circassian beauties who'd been brought over originally. She was a local girl who'd been recruited, had lots of beer put in her hair, turned into a big afro, and there we go. Hey, Bristol, Circassian beauty. But you get the idea. Possibly, though, the most famous person that we come to think about when we think about people exhibiting is Joseph Merrick, the elephant man. Believed he had a form of Proteus syndrome, or something else, which I can't pronounce. Neurofibromatosis part one, I think it's called. Now the common belief is it was an element of both of those things that he suffered from. He was born in 1862 and he was a fairly normal child up until about the age of three-ish. Reports differ between three and five. When the signature lumps started to appear, his father and his mother looked after him for a while and then his mother suddenly died. His stepmother came in, Merrick and his stepmother didn't really agree and he left home. Unfortunately, he had a couple of spells in the Leicester workhouse. He just ended up there because he couldn't get work. Finally, however, he left the workhouse and put himself on display. Before long, he was being shown in an empty shop in Mile End. The shop's still there. It's a sari warehouse now. If you want to go and see it, it's a shop. Frederick Treves saw him there, the surgeon, and uh, came across him and left him with a business card hoping that Merrick would consent to some medical investigation to see what was wrong with him. He decided, Merrick decided at that time that that probably wasn't going to happen. And side throws were rapidly being outlawed in Britain at that time, in 1886. So Merrick went to Belgium and performed over there for a little while. However, when he was over there, his uh, agent, shall we call him, mistreated him and ran off with all his money, left him in Belgium. Merrick slowly made his way back 
to Britain and eventually ended up in Liverpool Street in London, had an enormous case of bronchial infection, so was finding it hard to be understood. However, the police found um, Treves' business card in his hat. Treves was duly summoned and came to Merrick's rescue and took him to the hospital. And the London hospital <coughs> looked after Merrick for most of the rest of his life. He had a couple of phases where he went off to the country to enjoy the air, usually undercover in a little secret covered cart. But he lived basically at the London hospital until he was 27 when he died. Moving on a bit more now to the Prince of Humbug. I'm presuming everybody knows who the Prince of Humbug is, but if you don't, it's this man, Phineas T. Barnum. Barnum is the man that everybody thinks of when you think of a sideshow or a circus. He originally, however, was a storekeeper. He seems to have been a bit of a jack-of-all-trades, Barnum. He had his store. He left the store. He went to work selling books. He stopped selling books. He went to work in real estate. Gave up on that. Tried the lottery for a little while. Eventually, he came around and bought a woman called Joyce Heth, who we'll hear some more about later. And from Heth, his showmanship career spiralled. He was a renowned liberal. Um, he was also a member of the temperance movement and he was completely teetotal and he had been since he came back from London with Tom Thumb. <laughs> he was what he called himself a, a profitable philanthropist. He published his own biography several times um, and reportedly said that it had sold as many copies as the New Testament. I think that might have been a good example of Barnum and his humbug at work. Contemporaries of Barnum's were a bit worried about him really. He was a very, very forethinking man. He was a member of the debunkers, like Harry Houdini and other magicians of the time. And Barnum spent a lot of money and a lot of time looking at the practices of the uh, <coughs> psychic mediums and then promptly showing everybody how they did it. So needless to say, he wasn't always a popular man. So after he had decided to head into showmanship, he bought Joyce Heth. Joyce was a black slave woman. She was originally sold as the nursing mammy of George Washington, which would have made her about 400. She was originally owned by a chap called R.W. Lindsay, who tried and failed miserably to promote Heth. So he sold her on this whippersnapper called Barnum, thinking he'd made a fast buck. Barnum took Heth. She was getting old, probably very old, if you were to take Lindsay's word for it. She was blind, she was almost paralysed, but she could talk. And she could sing, and she spent a lot of time singing hymns and telling stories about little Georgie, as she called him. Heth became a celebrity in her own right, and there was a great deal of discussion about how legitimate she actually was. To quash, or perhaps knowing Barnum, to fuel the rumours, he agreed that when she died, she'd be subject to a public autopsy, and people would be able to buy a ticket for a reasonable sum. When she did finally die in 1836, Barnum was true to his word, and he did have her autopsied in public, in front of a crowd of 1,500 spectators. The autopsy showed that she was probably no more than 80 when she died. But Barnum was not one to let that stop him. He put forward a rumour that actually it wasn't Joyce Heth that had died at all, it was somebody else. They'd autopsied the wrong body. <laughs> and so the rumour mill went on. It's a great example of how Barnum was really the great kind of bringer of his own fortune. He was able to spin a story as well as you like. After Heth, well, Barnum just kept going up in the world. 
He bought Scudder's American Museum on the corner of Broadway and Ann Street in New York. Massive building. He set about turning it into a massive advertisement for itself, which was something really that hadn't been seen before. He painted panels on the outside of it with pictures of what was inside. And he lit it up with limelight, which was a very recent discovery in 1841. He opened the museum on the 1st of January 1842 as a place where families could go for good, wholesome entertainment. It was part zoo, part museum. There was a lecture hall, a waxworks, a theatre, and of course, a freak show. Some of his exhibits included scientific instruments. There were modern appliances. There was a flea circus, a dog which would, could run a loom, the trunk of a tree under which Jesus' disciples had apparently sat, a hat worn by Ulysses S. Grant, an oyster bar, rather surreally, a rifle range, a set of glass blowers, a taxidermist, phrenologists, people who read the bumps on your head. He had pretty baby contests. There was Ned, the learned seal, continuing <laughs> the trick of our learned animals. He had his famous Fiji mermaid, which was, of course, half monkey, half fish, and not really mermaid-looking at all. There was a menagerie of exotic animals. They had, he had beluga whales in aquariums in the basement. He had giants, midgets, the famous Chang and Eng, the Siamese twins, Grizzly Adams's trained bears, and a whole host of performances, from magicians to ventriloquists to the black and white minstrel show. There was adaptations of biblical tales and even a rendering of um, Uncle Tom's Cabin. It all came to an end suddenly, however. On July the 13th, 1865, the American Museum burned to the ground. Barnum tried to open another museum soon after that, but that also burned down. Barnum's life was dogged by fire. Three times his museums were burned down. His house burnt down, and quite often his tents would go on fire. General theories suggest that it might have been prohibition runners, it might have been anti-government protesters, it could have been all sorts. Barnum made lots of enemies and lots of friends. But eventually he started what became to be known as the greatest show on earth, which I'm sure everybody's heard of. He joined up with a chap called um, Cooper and started with the Barnum and Bailey show. They had elephants, they had all sorts. And of course they had Jumbo, the biggest elephant supposedly in the world. It was bought from London Zoo. It was the first circus used, that used trains to travel. Before that they'd use wagons. Everybody would be crowded in and away they'd go. Now they have trains. They developed boxcars that could be taken off the rails while the car wheels still stayed on the rails. And he had all sorts. Things that had never been seen before in parts of America. Giraffes particularly were a really rare commodity. And the circus ran for 10 years before Barnum died. And when he died, his partner James Bailey bought the circus out from his widow and continued to run the tours all the way through the eastern United States and over into Europe. And on the 27th of December, just after Christmas, 1897, the Barnum and Bailey Greatest Show on Earth started a European tour which lasted until 1902. And here are some of the worthies. This is a typical picture of Barnum's Freaks and curiosities, as they were called. It's worth noting at this point, actually, that Barnum never ever called these people freaks. That was a name that was thought up by, by Mr Bailey, and the freaks objected immensely to it. Barnum preferred to call them prodigies, which I think is quite a lot nicer. 
The freaks objected to the word freaks, obviously, and many of them held meetings when they were in London. Eventually, there was a consensus that they decided that they'd be called prodigies or curiosities rather than freaks. And that was kind of the case going forward, although occasionally it did still sneak in. Let me introduce you to some of these people a little bit more. We have the fabulous James Morris. James was born in New York with a thing called Ehlers-Danos Syndrome, which basically means the collagen in your skin doesn't work properly. It makes very stretchy skin. I'm sure you've seen these people who can all pull their ears out six inches and that kind of thing. Well, James could stretch his skin up to 18 inches. He was capable of grabbing the skin on his neck and wearing it like a polo neck up around his nose. Gives me the, the willies, but there we go. He joined Barnum in 1882 after he'd been a barber and he'd been in the army. And Barnum showed him all over America and all over Europe. There's a lot of pictures of him everywhere. He was a very, very famous man and seen pretty much as the best elastic-skinned man of his time, however you define that. He did, however, have a tendency towards drink, and that meant he tended to live with the sideshow a lot longer than most of his contemporaries, who by that point in time had gone off and retired somewhere. But it's worth noting that he earned a reported $150 a week with Barnum. That, in today's money, is about $3,000. So that's not... A not a shabby thing. I'd quite like to earn that much every, every week, that's for sure. And now we have this hairy fellow who's called Mung Fusset. At least I think that's how you say it. Mung Fusset came from Burma. There was a whole family of hairy people who lived with the king in Burma. They were all looked after. They were showered with gold. They had fabulous palace rooms. And they, they lived a fairly good life, however. But there was a revolution in Burma. And we, the British, deposed the king. The palace was set on fire, and the Harry family, as they were known, had to run for their lives. Eventually, an Italian soldier went off and found them living in a forest near where the, the palace had been, and suggested that perhaps they should go and tour around, make the most out of their strange appearance. And uh, they did. They came to England, France, they went to the Folie Bergère, and uh, they appeared in America. They joined ranks with Barnum for a little while and toured for a year with him. And generally, they were described as very well-educated and, and understandable. Um, what that says about what people thought they would be like, I'm not entirely sure. But sometime after 1889, the family disappeared. We know that some of them died while they were on the road, but some didn't. And we, it's believed that they went back to Burma and, and just faded away into sort of insignificance, which isn't necessarily a bad thing. Now, we have, we have a, a, a lovely lady here. I know Kareem has a particular fondness for this lady. This is Annie Jones, the wonderful bearded lady. Annie joined Barnum at the, at the very, very young age of nine months. I can only presume that she was a very hairy baby. Um, but her family saw the benefit of selling her to Barnum, and so they took a salary of $150 a week, same as James Morris got. I think that was a fairly standard fee for his sideshow performers. And by the age of five, she'd grown what was called a very impressive moustache and sideburns. She was known as the bearded girl. As an adult, she was well-known as one of the world's top bearded ladies. She also acted as a spokesperson for the freaks, as we mentioned earlier. And she, when she was speaking out about the usage of the word, said, freak means something like fright, and I do not consider myself the possession of a beard made anybody a fright. And if a beard made a lady a fright, then it must also a man. 
and no man possessing as fine a beard as mine would call himself a fright. <laughs> in her later career, Jones went to tour Russia and she reportedly turned down several painters who wanted her to pose as Jesus. <laughs> Don't see the likeness myself, but there we go. She married in 1881 and then divorced to marry her childhood sweetheart in 1895. And then, alas, she died in 1902 of tuberculosis. But she was a very outspoken lady, and rather a lovely lady, despite the large fur on her chin. We have this wonderful pairing now. This is Charles Tripp and Eli Bowen. They're a very unlikely pairing. You would really not believe their eyes, these two dapper gentlemen riding a tandem. And then you look closer, and you realise the gentleman at the front has no legs, and the gentleman at the back has no arms. So ideally paired to drive a tandem. Charles Tripp was born without arms in 1855, but he soon managed to adapt and carry on with his life normally. He used his feet for everything. He was a very accomplished writer. He was a fantastic photographer and apparently used to sort of take photographs of the, um, the, the, the customers at the carnival and the, the circus during the intervals. Lots of people have pictures taken of him. Bowen, on the other hand, was born with a couple of flippers instead of feet. And he's actually on your big picture of the circus sideshow. You can see him on there. Very early, though, he learnt the art of walking on his hands rather than his feet. He developed a phenomenal amount of upper body strength and became an acrobat, of all things. He joined the circus and then mastered a trick of climbing a pole. Remember, he has no feet, only with his arms. This ten-foot pole and swirling round the top of it before landing on the top and balancing on one hand. So he had an astonishing, astonishing amount of skill. But Barnum being Barnum saw the trick. When they were starting to get a little bit older, thought, I know, we'll take these two men and put them on a bicycle. Who else would think of something like that? This is a lady after my own heart, slightly taller than me. But this is Anna Swan and Martin van Buren Bates. They were, and still are, the largest married couple in the world. The combined height was 14 feet 8 inches. Anna was slightly taller than me at 7 feet 5 and a half inches. And her husband was a little bit shorter at 7 foot 2 and a half. Anna originally worked for Barnum way back in the days of the American Museum. If you remember, I said he had giants on display. Anna was one of them. In fact, she was trapped in the fire of 1865 and very nearly didn't get out. They realised quite quickly with the state of the fire that her weight, which was said to be about 400 pounds at that time, wouldn't have gone down the stairs. So they had to take the front wall of the building off to rescue her with a cherry picker. She met up with Van Buren Bates in, in Europe after she'd left Barnum. They went on a tour and became the darlings of Queen Victoria. She loved them. She had a very, Queen Victoria had a great passion for slightly unusual people. She had the Bateses. She also liked Tom Thumb, who was Barnum's very famous midget, and she quite often lavished them with gifts. When these two decided when they were in London to get married, which they did at St Martin in the Fields, she gifted them both jewellery. Anna Swan wore a large diamond cluster ring, which was given to her by the Queen, and Mr Bates wore a large timepiece, kind of like a digital watch nowadays, except you wound it up and it chimed on the hour. Quite an unusual thing. At the time when they got married, Anna's wedding dress was reportedly made out of an enormous amount of material. It was just huge. And then eventually, once they, they toured Europe, they retired to a farmhouse. 
purpose-built farmhouse with very large ceilings, but a farmhouse in America. But occasionally they came back out as the woodwork reappeared. Sometimes to help Barnum when he was running out of money, sometimes just because they were running out of money a bit. After the decline of Barnum a little bit, we move on to Coney Island. Everybody's heard of Coney Island. Most people from Stephen Fry in QI when he talked about the elephant. But Coney Island was a massive place, full of theme parks and amusements. Dreamland was just one of them. It became famous when Samuel Gumpert's opened Lilliputia, a whole community of little people. And he recruited them from all across the country and all across the world. They retired out of circuses and came to live in Dreamland, which is quite nice. They had their own miniature fire department. They had police officers. They had all sorts. And they'd put on displays every day for people. And just to heighten the effect a little bit more, Gumperts would pay giants to come in and walk around amongst the little people just to make them look extra short, which I'm sure they really appreciated. In spite of its many draws, however, and hundreds and hundreds of people came to Dreamland from New York, it struggled to complete, compete with nearby Luna Park, which was the far more famous of the, the parks on, on Coney Island. And it suffered, an, as is wont in the, in the sideshow business, a fire in 1911. And after that, the park was shut down. The midgets retired and they moved on. The sideshows started to decline in the 1930s. They weren't as popular as they were. This film had a lot to do with it. Freaks is a tale of a sideshow with all the wonderful characters you get in it. The trapeze artist falls in love with the midget, so to speak. Except she doesn't, she wants his money. They marry, she tries to kill him. It's a very, very standard story, <laughs> apart from the fact that half the cast are three foot tall, some have got one arm, that kind of thing. It was directed by Todd Browning, who was more famous for his work on Dracula. And he took the unusual step of casting real sideshow freaks, as he called them, into the parts. He felt it would give it an authenticity that there wasn't beforehand. The test screenings of the movie were a disaster. He'd been told to make it scary, so he did. Unfortunately, one woman claimed the film had caused her to have a miscarriage. And because of this, the studio took the decision to cut the film from 90 minutes, which it was, down to 64, chopping out quite a lot of content. Although the original cut was released for a little while, <laughs> and it was a great success, eventually it was the 64-minute cut which came out. Many of the freaks who'd been in the film publicly disassociated themselves because they felt the cut then showed them in a bad light. It felt it showed them as monsters, where the original had tried to show them almost in opposite. The film was banned in large parts of the world. A lot of states in America still ban it to this day, and we in Britain had it banned for over 30 years. Although it was rediscovered in the 1960s and has developed something of a cult status now. In fact, it was picked by the United States Film Registry as being culturally, historically, and aesthetically significant. So it's had a bit of a resurgence. But it all helped with the decline of the sideshow. As did these chaps. Well, they fought it, these chaps. CeeLo, Pete Terhoon and Otis Jordan were again all sideshow performers. CeeLo, as you can see, suffers from a thing called phocomyalia, which is where you have little tiny bones or no bones and basically flippers. And he and Peter Tehoun were charged with exhibiting themselves. Basically, that's the same as a pornographer would be charged with. It was an old statute on the books of Florida, and they felt the need to challenge this. So they did, and they won. They sued the state of Florida, and they were allowed to keep performing. But it was very much a sign of things to come, because when Otis Jordan, who's the chap at the bottom, decided to come on and start performing again, 
A woman named Barbara Baskin decided that it was a shame that he should be allowed to perform and it should be stopped. He shouldn't be forced to perform. And so she took the, the case to court. She won. He was made to stop performing. And it took him two years to get back to performing again before it all came good. CeeLo had a wonderful attitude to this. He said people often felt sorry for him and his reaction was always, why do they need to save me? If I wanted to, I could have lit cigars with $5 bills, presumably, in quote, to how much money he was making. Certainly wasn't a luxury that he would have had if he'd been in an institution where, where unfortunately, a lot of these acts Kate went after the disbandment of the Turkish sideshows. They either retired and were placed into institutions. Some of them made it into a wonderful place in Florida called Gibston, which is where, from what I can tell, carny people go to retire. It's full of elephants and all sorts. But after the decline, they're making a degree of a resurgence now, funnily enough. Although more so with a self-made freak. Self-made freaks are really people who've got body modification, tattoos, implants, piercing, rather than a physical deformity that they have just now, they have had previously. Mainly that's because the physical deformities aren't there anymore. Science has moved on. We know how to treat these things and they can be dealt with. So the people who have stretchy skin or missing limbs now have prosthetics, drugs they can take. But there's still a call for the sideshow. And slowly but surely, there is a degree of freak who's coming back. Jennifer Miller is a knife juggler and an escape artist who also happens to have a beard. And the Black Scorpion is a comedian who also has lobster claw syndrome, where he has fused fingers, so he only has two or three. In the modern day, where circuses using live animals are frowned upon now. Perhaps once again, there'll be a rise for a sideshow of sorts. And we're on to our final act, the blow-off. Early in the days of Barnum's American Museum, he realised that people weren't coming through at quite the rate they should have been. They were standing around for ages, which meant that people weren't coming in the door. Obviously, the more people in the door, the more money he made. That wasn't happening. So Barnum put some signs up, pointing them to what they thought was a new attraction. So without further ado, ladies and gentlemen, if you'd like to follow the signs, that's all I have for you, ladies and gentlemen. This event was recorded live on the 6th of August, 2009, at the National Archives, Kew. For more podcasts, please visit nationalarchives.gov.uk forward slash podcasts.